Good afternoon and welcome. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us here in the room and online via our event streaming for today's event. My name is Nicole Kading and I am a budget analyst here at the Cato Institute. Today's discussion will focus on a fantastic new book by Michael Tanner entitled Going for Broke, Deficits, Debt, and the Entitlement Crisis. In the book, Michael lays out his argument for why large substantial changes are needed to America's entitlement system. Much of the debate here in Washington focuses on eliminating waste, fraud, and abuse. These categories are important, but are a drop in the bucket of federal expenditures. The Government Accountability Office says that improper payments, one measure of this category of expenditures, represents less than 4% of all federal spending on an annual basis. Eliminating waste, fraud, and abuse is a positive step forward, but it does little to solve the federal spending glut. Instead, Social Security and Medicare, our two largest entitlement programs, comprise half of all federal spending. And these programs are expected to grow rapidly over the next decade, partly due to our aging population. The Congressional Budget Office says that 85% of federal spending growth over the next decade is due to Social Security, our health care entitlement programs, Medicare, Medicaid, and Obamacare, and net interest on the federal debt. Budget plans must reform these programs if, if fiscal reform is to succeed. Michael's book provides concrete ways to reform these programs and should be a roadmap for Congress and the President to enact fiscal reforms. In terms of today's forum, we, Michael will first discuss this book, then our distinguished guests will provide their comments and we will open the floor for questions afterward. First, allow me to introduce Michael Tanner. Michael Tanner is a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute and heads research into a variety of domestic policies with particular emphasis on poverty and social welfare policy, healthcare reform, and social security. He's the author of numerous books on public policy, including Leviathan on the Right, How Big Government Conservatism Brought Down the Republican Revolution, Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It, The Poverty of Welfare, Helping Others in a Civil Society, and A New Deal for Social Security. Under Tanner's direction, Cato launched the Project on Social Security Choice, which is widely considered the leading impetus for transforming the soon-to-be bankrupt system into a private savings program. Time Magazine called Tanner one of the architects of the private accounts movement, and Congressional Quarterly named him one of the nation's five most influential experts on Social Security. Most recently, he has undertaken a major project to develop innovative solutions to poverty and inequity. His writings have appeared in nearly every major American newspaper, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. He has a weekly column for National Review Online and is a contributing columnist with the New York Post. A prolific writer and frequent guest lecturer, Tanner appears regularly on network and cable news programs. Join me in welcoming Michael Tanner. Well, thank you, and uh, I appreciate your coming out on this steamy day in Washington. I see Washington's other season has now arrived. Uh, we have winter and swamp, uh, and so we're now in the swamp season. Uh, I do recommend uh, the book, obviously. Uh, as the author, I don't get any uh, royalties on it, so I'm not hawking it for that reason. But I do think it's an important book. 
Uh, it's, it's fun, exciting, you'll laugh, you'll cry, mostly cry, uh, I think, uh, when we get done with it. Uh, but I do thank you all for coming out, and I thank our, our guests uh, for taking time out of their day to come and give some comments on it. And I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on it. I hope we have some, some Q&A and some interaction up here on the panel, and maybe that will provide a little more enlightenment. But I do want to give you kind of a little bit of a, an overview, uh, if I can, of what uh, we're talking about. And let me do something very different for me. Usually, when I give these talks, I'm accused of how depressing I am. Uh, in fact, they, they had stopped letting me talk before meals because I always put people off of, the, off of their feed after that. So I'm actually going to start off with some good news. So this is a chart showing uh, the annual budget deficits. And uh, the good news is right here on, on this end here, it shows that uh, the budget deficit has come down substantially. Uh, in the last couple of years. I mean, it wasn't so very long ago when we had budget deficits that were $1.4 trillion, uh, which is real money even by Washington terms. Uh, and now we're down to a budget deficit this year is going to be somewhere in the $450 billion or so range. Uh, that's a substantial improvement. And it results from a number of factors, uh, some of them uh, good policy, some of them sort of coincidence, uh, and some something sort of outside government's control in a, in a way. Uh, most of the stimulus spending uh, that took place in the wake of the Great Recession has now been spent. Uh, so that sort of spending has passed. Uh, TARP uh, has been paid back to a large extent. And there's weird accounting gimmicks and or measures, I should say, in Washington uh, where uh, when TARP is repaid, it actually counts as negative spending rather than as, uh, as revenue, and so that sort of goes down. And of course, you also had the sequester, uh, which held down the rate of growth and spending on both defense and domestic discretionary spending and made a significant difference. And then finally, you've had an increase in revenues, partly as a result of the deal uh, which uh, repealed portion of the Bush tax cuts and partially because we've had a recovery. Uh, an economic recovery, which has simply generated more revenue. So revenues have, uh, have increased as well. All of that has resulted in lower deficits. And since we have lower deficits, uh, a lot of folks have simply decided that the problem is over. Uh, Paul Krugman says uh, the problem is mostly solved. Um, we really don't have to, to worry about it. In fact, I think he writes a column every second Tuesday in which he, he says this. Uh, it, it, uh, it's interspersed with the column in which he says that conservatives and libertarians are all racists, and the column that says that Obamacare is working. So it's a, one of the three standard columns. Uh, but uh, Matt Iglesias at Slate, you know, what sovereign debt crisis? There certainly isn't one in the United States. And of, of course, we now have the Obama administration saying that because we solved the budget problem, uh, we now have an end to the era of austerity. Um, you all recall the austerity that we went through over the last uh, decade or so, if, if you remember that. I, I missed it, but, uh, but I'm sure you all remember what was there. Uh, so the question is, uh, you know, can we sort of sit back now and uh, say, well, the deficit's down, we sort of solved the problem? Well, maybe not. Because <laughs> this is the uh, CBO's projected budget deficits going forward. The red line, the blue line is the chart I just showed you. Uh, here, and the red line shows that, whoops, within about two years, that budget deficit starts going up on an annual basis every year again. And we begin to rise up again, and lo and behold, out in about 10 years, we're back to trillion-dollar budget deficits every year. Uh, that doesn't really sound like the problem has been, has been solved, uh, really. 
In fact, if you want to go up beyond that, the, the numbers really get unsustainable. This is a projected future budget deficits uh, in trillions of dollars, uh, 2014 dollars, so it's inflation adjusted. And as you see, is uh, budget deficits that are in the you know, $12 trillion marks in the out years, which is obviously fantasy. You know, that which cannot continue eventually stops. So I assume that we're never going to get to that point. But that's the budget projection line that we're on, which doesn't exactly sound like we've, uh, we've solved the problem. Uh, and if, you know, if budget deficits are sort of the measure of one year, sort of this year's profligacy, it's sort of like if you, you, know, if you go out and you overspend on your credit card this month, uh, you know, that's the measure of well, a little bit of bad planning for this month or this year or whatever it is you're talking about. But if you add those all up, the, the year to year after year after year of running deficits, of course, you get debt. And same with your credit cards. If you have one month of, of deficit in your credit cards, not too bad. But if every month you run, uh, overrun your credit cards, eventually you end up with a household debt that's unsustainable. And this is a projection from the CBO of what the public debt uh, is going to be uh, going forward. And you can see that, again, it gets to astronomical levels where we're t uh, as you get there in the out years. Again, it doesn't sound like the, uh, the problem has been particularly solved. Uh, just to put this in perspective, uh, our debt, current debt is just over 100% of GDP, uh, which is, means that we actually owe more than all the goods and services produced in this country over the course of a year. In many ways, it's as if your credit card debt was larger than your entire annual take-home pay pre-tax. Uh, you probably have a problem at that point. Uh, if you want to put it in context, you know, we hear a great deal about the crisis in Greece and how bad uh, things were. I'm just back from Italy, and they're talking about their debt problems. And the U.S. is probably sort of middling uh, when it comes to that. We're, there's places that are worse than us, uh, so-called pigs, you know, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, and Greece. Uh, but there's places that we expect would be as bad, you know, worse than us that aren't. Uh, we're actually slightly worse off than France when it comes to national debt. You know, and we sort of think of the French as the model of profligacy when it comes to spending. But, the, but the, we're actually slightly worse off than they are, worse off than Britain. Uh, Worse off than the average of the EU when it, when it comes to debt. So certainly we have a substantial amount of debt overhang in this, in this country. But as bad as that is, and what I suggest in the book, is that doesn't even begin to tell the actual story of how bad our debt is. Because there's actually several different types of debt when you begin to look at debt held by the government. Uh, and the first of these is simply debt held by the public, uh, which is the debt that's issued in terms of government bonds and so on. And, uh, you know, you actually, if you have a 401k that has gov government bonds in it or whatever, you have a portion of this debt. In institutions all over the country have owned part of this debt. About 40% of this debt is held by, uh, by foreign countries, about 9%. The two largest uh, countries are Japan and China, each hold about 9% of this debt. Uh, this, but this is, this is the debt that's actually out there issued in terms of government bonds and so on. And most economists consider this the most serious type of debt for a lot of reasons. We have to pay interest on it. We have to pay it back at some point. Uh, it is potential for crowding out uh, uh, private borrowing and so on. So people really worry about this, this type of debt. Uh, it runs right now to about $13 trillion, just a little bit more than that, uh, which, is, which is fairly substantial and is, and is headed upwards. Uh, but there's some other types of debt as well. Uh, there's debt, intergovernmental debt, which is debt that the government owes to other parts of the government. Uh, 
with the various trust funds and revolving accounts. Most famous of these, of course, is the Social Security Trust Fund, which holds about $2.9 trillion in government debt. There's a Medicare Trust Fund, the Highway Trust Fund, and so on. There's over 100, actually, of these trust funds. There's a Gulf Oil Spill Trust Fund, and so on. There's all these little trust funds hidden throughout the government. And the government actually owes about $5 trillion to these various trust funds. Uh, now, you hear, you know, a lot about how these, these bonds are inviolable, the government's never made a you know, late payment on them, and so on, and all of which is true, but it does mean that when this money comes due, they eventually have to come up with the money to pay it back. I mean, just to give you an example, the uh, Social Security system ran about a $60 billion deficit last year. It spent about $60 billion on benefits more than it takes in, uh, not counting interest payments, which are made in the form of debt. But, uh, but in order to pay that, they actually have to redeem some of these bonds, and, come up, and that means the government has to find $60 billion with which to redeem the bonds, with which to pay the benefits. So eventually, the government's going to have to come up with all that debt. And if you add that together, you get about $18 trillion, a little over $18 trillion, which is the current national debt. And when the media and economists and others talk about the national debt, that's generally what they're talking about, is the combination of that intergovernmental debt and the, and the debt held by the public, which is, a, is about $18.2 trillion uh, as of this morning. <clears throat> uh, there's also a third type of debt, though, that we should be aware of, and that's the implicit debt or the unfunded obligations of these, uh, of these government going forward, and particularly for a couple of programs like Social Security and Medicare, uh, which have legal obligations in terms of the benefits that have to be paid in the future. Now, we can estimate what those obligations are going to be. We can look out into the future, and we can estimate how many people are going to be retired in a given year, and we know what the law says that those people have to get in terms of benefits, so we can figure out roughly what we're going to have to pay those people. And we can also estimate roughly how much money is going to come into those systems through the various payroll taxes or other programs, other taxes that fund those programs, because we know how many people are going to be working, what they roughly will be earning, and, and how much the tax rate is going to be on those. And we can find the two. And there's a gap between what we've promised in payments and what we ultimately are going to bring in in revenue in order to, to pay those payments. And there's a gap, and that gap, depending on exactly how you want to measure it, particularly dealing with future health care costs, runs around $70 trillion or potentially as much as $90 trillion. Uh, you add all that up and you get a real indebtedness somewhere in the $90 to $120 trillion range at least five times and perhaps as much as nine times of GDP. And I should point out that these numbers are in terms of uh, discounted present value. So what it means is if you actually had that money today, socked it away in a bank, and earned about a 3% interest rate, you'd be able to pay all those future benefits that are going forward. Now, some people would say, well, these implicit obligations, this implicit debt, it's not real debt in the sense that it's not a government bond, there's not a legal obligation that way to, to pay it, but there is under current law. The current law says you have to pay those Social Security benefits. Unless you change the law, unless we reform systems like, program, like Medicare or Social Security to change what the current law is, we will eventually have to pay that, and those will eventually move up to either intergovernmental debt or, or debt held by the public. They'll simply move up the chart there and become a different, more solid type of debt as we move forward, because the government's eventually got to make those payments. If you actually want to look at that in context, and you look at the, the, in the unfunded obligations in addition to the on book, the $18 trillion debt, plus those additional $72 trillion or so in, in debt, what you actually get here is that the U.S., well, we're still not number one. We're still not as bad as Greece. 
Uh, we're actually a little bit worse, uh, better off than France because they have a large pension obligation in their debt, large unfunded obligations in their pension system as well. But that's it. We're actually worse off in some ways than Portugal or uh, Italy or Spain or the countries you hear about in crisis in Europe. Uh, that's a significantly bad economic situation. Now, we do hold some advantages over these. We're a considerably larger economy than they are. Uh, we're still the, the world reserve currency. Uh, you know, it, it might be a low bar, but we're still the best bad bet out there, which means that uh, you know, other countries are still willing to lend us money at absurdly low interest rates. Uh, you know, if you're somebody looking for where you're going to stick your money, the euro doesn't look like such a good deal right now. Nobody's buying rubles, and uh, the renminbi is not exactly the best investment out there. So, so people buy put in dollars, and they, they invest in the United States, which allows our interest rates to stay low. But if interest rates don't stay as low as they currently are, if they go back to anything approaching historic levels, <coughs> you can expect all these obligations, all this debt to shoot up substantially. Well, how do we fix it? Well, if you listen to the two sides in the debate right now, uh, they're both kind of dug in on their, their sides on this. And, uh, and neither one, I think, makes a particularly good case. On one side, you hear people say, well, all we need to do is raise taxes to fix it. Uh, we're a wealthy country. If we just take more of that wealth and use it to pay back the debt, we'll be all set. Uh, essentially, this is always argued as if we could just make the rich pay their fair share. Uh, if we could make Warren Buffett pay more than his secretary, uh, that would solve the problem. We can argue about that, whether that's actually true or not. There's uh, double and triple taxation on the Warren Buffett savings that's not counted and all that. Or Hillary uh, Clinton in her speech this weekend said, you know, hedge fund makers making more than teachers, and that's somehow bad, and we should punish those hedge fund uh, people. So we're going to raise taxes on them. Well, I, I always said they're thinking small. No, all this little bit, we're going to raise taxes by a little bit. We're going to take away the deduction for corporate jets or something like that. that. That's always thinking small. What I suggest we do is let's take it all. Let's not raise taxes on the rich. Let's confiscate it all, every penny. So this chart shows what would happen if we simply took everything that everybody who earned a million dollars last year or more made. So we take everything from every millionaire and billionaire that's out there. And what you get is this yellow line, uh, this, this sort of purplish line right here in the middle. Uh, that's uh, our current uh, national debt, $18.2 trillion. The yellow box over there on, the, on the, this side, that includes unfunded obligations. And you can see how big that is, uh, potential unfunded obligations out there. And the blue box, that's the wealth of all those millionaires. So you could take it all, and we wouldn't even pay off the national debt, let alone touch those unfunded obligations in the future. You're not going to tax your way out of this. In fact, if you wanted to do this through taxes, this was a uh, CBO uh, report that was actually sent to Paul Ryan about four years ago. So these, these numbers are about four years old. So figure the debt's increased since then it would actually have to be higher. But if you wanted to pay off current obligations. That's assuming we never create another government program, ever. We just take the current government programs and we want to pay them off. You would actually have to increase both the corporate income tax rate and the top income tax bracket to 88%. That's only at the federal level, by the way. That would not include state and local taxes. So you'd have to have an 80%, 88% top tax rate. 
the 25% tax bracket would go to 63%, and the 10% tax rate for only the lowest income people pay would go to 25%. And that would balance our budget going forward uh, with the obligations we currently have, assuming we don't ever have another war or national disaster or, you know, anything like that that goes on, assuming all our estimates are, are correct. So quite simply, you cannot tax your way out of this problem. You simply, even if you assume that it was good enough, that, that your taxes wouldn't hurt the economy, that we could do all this, you can't, just can't get there from here. What about the other side? If you can't raise taxes enough, you're going to need to cut spending, right? And at least, you know, some, not many, but a few of the Republicans out there occasionally make noises about cutting spending. The problem is the spending they want to cut doesn't come anywhere near what's necessary to deal with the problem. We, we sort of were going to balance the budget by cutting the usual suspects. We'll get rid of foreign aid, which everybody hates. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll kill Big Bird, or we'll defund Planned Parenthood. Well, the reality is those things are negligible amounts of spending. Uh, foreign aid is 1% of federal spending, 1%. Big Bird and Planned Parenthood subsidies combined are one ten thousandth of a percent of federal spending. Frankly, you know, you could, I, I'm, I'm all for cutting pretty much everything. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you throw out there a cut you want to make, and I'm probably for it. But it's not going to balance the budget. It's not going to reduce the debt. I mean, look, this is where our spending actually goes. All domestic discretionary spending combined is 16% of federal spending. 16%. Defense spending is another 16%. Now, obviously, we should be cutting those two areas. But combined, they're a third of federal spending. There's some other areas you can't touch. Net interest on the debt, 6%. You can't do anything about that. In fact, that may even grow if the interest rates go back up. There's 12% uh, other types of entitlement programs, farm price supports, and so on. But look at the way the big one is. Social Security, 24%. Medicare, 17%. Medicaid, 9%. Combined, those programs alone are half of federal spending. You can't be serious about balancing the budget or reducing the debt if you don't deal with entitlement spending. If you don't deal with Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, you can't be serious about balancing the budget. And it's only going to get worse. Uh, these big blue lines uh, ch uh, chart here, actually the, the dark blue down below is Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, net interest, and you can see where it's going to go. It's only getting to be a larger and larger portion of the budget. The President's right, actually. We've reduced domestic discretionary spending some of the lowest levels as a percent of GDP uh, in, our, in our recent history. The other spending that's eating up the budget and going to continue to eat up the budget in the future, and in fact, we will end up, I mean, you figure you've got to have some defense spending up there and that other spending. We've got to have a little bit up there. What we'll end up having is a government that mails checks to old people and has a very tiny army to defend them, and that's about it. That's about all the government will do. So whether you're, you know, whether you're a defense hawk or whether you're a liberal who wants to spend more on investment on roads and bridges or education or whatever it is you want to spend money on, there isn't going to be any. Whether you want more tax cuts, whether you want to reduce the size of government, it's all being taken up by Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and the accompanying interest payments on that. You're going to have to address those. Essentially. There's not an easy, cheap way out of this. It's not, we'll raise taxes a little bit here. 
We'll trim a program a little bit there. All the choices are going to be politically, if not economically, politically a little bit painful. And in the book, I talk in detail about some of them, and maybe we'll get into some of the details about some of the options there are for reforming these programs. But doing nothing isn't an option. As you know, every year that goes by, the problem just gets worse. Every year that the politicians refuse to act, it just gets worse. And as Margaret Thatcher famously said, the problem with the modern welfare state is eventually you run out of other people's money. We're going to run out of money. The question then becomes, do we, solve, do we have a nice soft landing that we start now trying to fix it so that we can make these reforms now in a way that are gradual, in a way that minimizes the pain? Or do we make them the tough way when it's imposed later on because we're out of money and we increasingly end up looking like Greece? Thank you all very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Uh, first, we'll hear comments from Maya McGinnis. Maya McGinnis is the president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, as well as head of the Campaign to Fix the Debt. Her areas of expertise include budget, tax, and economic policy. McGinnis testifies regularly before Congress and has published broadly. Once dubbed an anti-deficit warrior by the Wall Street Journal, Maya comments often on broadcast news and is widely cited by the national press. In the spring of 2009, she did a stint on the Washington Post editorial board covering economic and fiscal policy. She has worked at the Brookings Institution and on Wall Street. As a political independent, she has advised numerous candidates for office from both parties and works regularly with members of Congress on health, economic, tax, and budget policy. Please join me in welcoming Maya McGinnis. for many, many, many years, it feels like, starting on Social Security reform. Um, and you start to get this, this ominous feeling that we're not going to get a lot of this accomplished, but instead we're going to hit some kind of a, a rough, a, a, a not a soft landing, where it's going to be an I told you so, instead of look at all the things we could have done to put us on the right path. And that's, that's discouraging. So hopefully um, books like this, discussions like this, help get this country into the more uh, reasonable, honest discussion about one, acknowledging how real these problems are, and two, working out the variety of possible solutions to address them so that we could actually make some changes. Um, I'm going to be brief because I, too, am really looking forward to the discussion. Uh, and basically, I'm going to reiterate a couple of the points that I think are really most important in all of this. Um, and the first one is the fact that right now we have deficit or debt denial that's sort of pervading the, the national narrative, I think. Um, and what's happened is the past years have really been focused on fiscal issues. Uh, first, in fact, for kind of the wrong reasons. When we had the huge economic crisis, suddenly budget deficits were trillion dollars a year. And that was kind of an eye-popping wake-up moment for the country. Um, now, at that moment, trillion-dollar deficits, which trillion is a lot to suddenly switch from billions to trillions, um, were troubling in how large they were. They weren't the problem. The problem was that we were in a huge financial crisis and we were headed possibly to a depression, certainly a very strong recession, and we wanted to think about ways to get out of that and get growth back on track. 
But what it did do is it focused the country's attention on fiscal issues. And since then, as the economic recovery has been taking hold a little bit more, it's been time to pivot our focus from how do you avoid a huge economic crisis uh, into how do you get our structural fiscal situation back on track. Um, and unfortunately, what's happened is I think we made a couple runs at trying to address the problem through Simpson-Bowles and the negotiations between the White House and members on the Hill. And you have, um, no news to anybody here, an incredibly politically dysfunctional situation where nothing can get done. Whether you loved what they were talking about, hated what they were talking about, care about the 12 other issues that should be on the agenda right now, nothing's getting done. Um, so we kind of went through a bunch of failed attempts to address these problems. And now, as the deficit is coming down dramatically, um, cut by two-thirds, and as predicted, because this is the result of, in most ways, the economic recovery and the growing, the growing strength of the economy, you have people heralding this as a success, right? We saw the quotes and the deficit problem is gone. Um, that is just ignoring the huge, huge situation that we are actually still in the midst of. One, the short-term deficit is just not the problem. It wasn't when we had trillion-dollar deficits, and it's not now. The fact is, looking forward with the trajectory we're on, is a huge problem, uh, structural in nature, due to the aging, the workforce, the aging of the country, growing health care costs, things that are not going to fix themselves. Um, so we know we're headed on the wrong path. And two, these debt levels, which Mike, Mike talked a lot about, um, are at historical highs. Right? So our deficit came down a little bit, but our debt, and first off, our deficit came down by two-thirds after it had grown by 800%. So I think we're kind of applauding a little bit prematurely there. But the debt is still twice the historical average, twice the level that it was as a share of the economy when we went into the economic crisis. And we have no plans to bring it back down to historical levels of, of below 40% of GDP. Um, I think the reason is pretty clear. Dealing with this really is hard. There is no magic answers. I, I have um, a ton of appreciation for how much Mike does to try to kind of shed the light on the common myths that people run and hide behind. Neither party wants to address this. Whether you're talking about raising revenues or reducing, reforming entitlements, this stuff is really hard. It's not the kinds of things that political pollsters tell their candidates they're going to win on. Uh, and people are very eager to have convenient, you know, look, the problem isn't better. We don't need to worry about it. Excuses to not deal with this. Um, the second thing I would talk about is what it's going to take to fix the problem. And um, the third thing I'm going to talk about is entitlement. So I agree completely with Mike that the entitlements are really the key part of it. But I come, and this is probably, this is my political independent, and this is my trying to get everybody to work together part of it. I come from the belief that there is absolutely no way we are going to actually fix this problem without looking at all parts of the budget. Um, there is not enough will to deal with the entitlements that are driving this to, to fix the problem completely through the entitlement programs. And we should talk about, I hope in the discussion, a lot of the kinds of fixes that are most promising. It's really important to get started on them quickly because the longer you wait, the harder they are to do. These are programs that affect people directly, and so they need time to change and adjust and prepare. Um, but there are also programs that affect a lot of people who don't need them. So there's a lot of capacity there to reform entitlements in a way that will protect people who depend on the programs but free up a ton of resources. But it's not just an economy that we're talking about. It's a political economy. It's a country with people with very different visions about what the size of government should be and where the fixes could, should come from. And I don't see any prospects of making progress unless everybody feels that it's kind of everybody's involved with the fixes. I thought one really interesting thing, I don't know how closely people follow this, probably not, not as closely as we did at our office, but um, 
We had that deal, Ryan Murray, a couple years ago, which what it did is it traded out the sequester, which is across the board discretionary cuts, uh, very blunt, not targeted at all. It got rid of some of that sequester cuts and replaced it with some mandatory cuts, some user fees, and some gimmicks. But the one piece um, of, of that replacement plan, and I think that's the right structure. Let's get rid of dumb cuts and replace them with the smart cuts from entitlements. The one real savings piece there had something to do with um, pension reform for military retirees. Um, and it was one small mandatory change, but it was one that almost anybody who's looked at the budget thought made sense. A lot of people who retired very early went on, had second jobs, were getting very generous pensions. This isn't kind of the, the veterans. Um, it's not taking care of veterans. It's, it's generous pensions before people necessarily need them. So it was a pretty universally supported proposal. But if you'll remember, they signed this plan, and basically one month later, everybody, including many of the people who came up with the Ryan Murray deal, were repealing it because they couldn't stand the pressure that was on them from the groups of people saying, hey, this isn't fair. And the reason I would argue is when you single out one part of the budget to make changes to, why are you picking on that group? Why isn't everybody? We need to also look at farm subsidies. We need to look at uh, pensions for, for government employees. We need to look at Medicare benefits for people who could be paying higher premiums. We need to look at what defense spending makes sense, what doesn't. When you single out one part of the budget, it's a lot harder for it to stick than if you put it all parts of the budget. But in addition to that, Democrats and Republicans are dug in where they are. I don't think it makes sense to think that we'll be able to fix this without revenues being part of the solution. I don't think you can fix the problem, certainly, with revenues alone. That's 100% true. But I think everything needs to be on the table. Um, just on the topic of revenues, I've been thinking about this with the 2016 election. You know, there's the No New Taxes Pledge. And I was thinking about it the other day, and I was just trying to understand. To me, that's the biggest cowardly pledge you could take, no new taxes. When if you want a smaller government where you don't raise taxes, the pledge you take is no new spending. The pledge you take is not, I'm going to spend a lot of money and then refuse to pay the bills, which is kind of what we've been bumping up into. It's, I'm not going to spend more money. But I feel like the political environment is always looking for the easy outs, and that's one of the things that really leaves this issue um, kind of by the wayside. Nobody has stood up and had a tough conversation. Well, Chris Christie had a really, I thought, important speech on entitlements, but few politicians stand up and say, this is what it's going to take. That brings me to entitlements. This is what it's going to take. We have put so much, two-thirds of the budget, on automatic pilot. It doesn't even go through the appropriations process where we look and consider whether these programs make sense. So much of it is directed towards people who don't necessarily need the benefits they're getting, but in order to keep programs universal, we continue to expand benefits for the well-off instead of ensuring that they are targeted towards people who really need them. We need to think about how in this modern era workforce with people in all sorts of different kinds of jobs, right? There's the, there's the Uber economic model. There's people who are in and out of the workforce. Things have changed dramatically since 1935 and 65 when these programs were built. We need to rethink how we're going to provide benefits. But I would also say we need to rethink the overall priorities of our spending in our country. We, um, we all know this. We live in a seriously highly competitive global environment. We are going to have to do so much more in order to compete. Um, and what we do at the federal government level is spend 7 or $8 on every person over 65 for every one we spend on people under 18. That is backwards of investing and thinking about how you want to have a long-term strategy for an economy in a highly competitive environment. Um, so I think we really need to do rethinking 
and acknowledge that this is the biggest part of the budget, and this is where the savings are going to come from. Um, so I hope we'll sort of talk about some of the specifics. I think Social Security and Medicare are the two most important programs that we can think about how to make reforms to. I'd also put tax expenditures, which is, for people who don't know about this, tax breaks, which are really spending through the tax code, right? I want to promote childcare. I want to promote housing. I want to promote promote higher ed. People don't create spending programs anymore. They create targeted tax breaks, which is really just a way of spending through the tax code. We lose a trillion dollars a year in revenue from that. There is so much um, that we should be doing in terms of oversight, targeting, thinking about what the, that's really the best use of our dollars. And there's plenty of savings that could be generated there. I don't believe we should be raising tax rates. I think that would be counterproductive. But I think there's a whole lot of way to generate savings from tax expenditures. Um, so I guess the bottom line of what I would say is we're about to go into a presidential election. We should not have kicked the can during this past administration, the past eight years. It was really, we lost a huge opportunity to really put in place a lot of savings that could have compounded slowly, gradually, um, in a way that really protected everybody who needed protection um, and helped grow the economy, helped strengthen the economy. I think one of the things I probably haven't talked about enough is how bringing the debt down is so good for the economy and will help generate the growth that's going to help sort of create a virtuous cycle. Um, but we lost that opportunity by not having made progress. In fact, we're continuing to raise, to add to the debt every, every couple months, every tough issue that comes along in Congress right now. We just did this doc fix. They didn't want to pay for it. We borrowed the money. There's a bunch of tax breaks that have expired. We don't feel like paying for them. We're going to borrow the money at the end of the year. I mean, it's just kind of a foregone conclusion that we don't actually pay for anything we do anymore. In this presidential election, we have got to have a discussion where whatever candidate becomes president and hope they hope that they'll have the next eight years to, to be president, um, cannot avoid these tough choices anymore. We are now running out of time. And the baby booms have started to retire. That means that every year they're in the retirement, it, it becomes much more difficult to include them in the kinds of reforms we need. And the bottom line is wherever you come from, if you want a bigger government but you want to pay for it, if you want a smaller government and you're willing to cut the spending, um, that's fiscal responsibility. There's all sorts of ways to be fiscally responsible, but they boil down to choices. And we really need to have a conversation about what choices this country wants to make instead of acting like the debt is kind of this freebie credit card which won't catch up with us, because it will. It's going to have incredibly profoundly negative effects on the economy if we don't get control of it. Thank you, Maya. Uh, and finally, we will hear from James Pethokoukas. He is the DeWallace Fellow and the editor of AEI Ideas at the American Enterprise Institute. Previously, he was the Washington columnist for Reuters Breaking Views, the opinion and commentary wing of Thomas Reuters. He was the business editor and uh, economics columnist for US News and World Report from 1997 to 2008. He has written for many publications, including the New York Times, the Weekly Standard, Commentary, National Review, the Washington Examiner, USA Today, and Investors Business Daily. And if during Q&A you would like to stump him with trivia, he is a 2002 Jeopardy champion. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. Join me in welcoming. I was not a year-long grand champion. I did not win like 200 games in a row. That should be very clear. Won my first, lost my second. Probably a fluke. Um, uh, first of all, uh, thanks, thanks for having me and inviting me. Uh, I'm going to do my best. I, I'll admit uh, that my mind is mostly taken up 
with Donald Trump running for president. That is just coursing through. And then most of the rest of my brain is taken up with the fact that the FBI is apparently investigating the St. Louis Cardinals for hacking the Houston Astros. So, uh, and being a Cubs fan, it's about time they investigated the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, perhaps take back some of those World Series. So with uh, whatever small portion of my brain remains, I will try to talk about um, uh, uh, Mike's uh, very, very good book and talk a little bit about the debt. Uh, uh, it is a very good book. I, I, I will be uh, returning to it uh, frequently. Uh, uh, it makes, a, I think, a fantastic case for uh, the fiscal situation of the United States, as well as, I think, running through um, you know, some possible fixes. Um, I think one of the big points it makes, uh, which is a, a very good point, which, which we may not be focusing on enough, is that this isn't a problem that's going to be taxed away. Uh, it's not going to be taxed away even if we go back to uh, the sort of tax rates we had uh, in, the, uh, in the 1950s. Um, I think another excellent point uh, is that, well, I mean, listen, he has ideas in this book. He is talking about that this is a problem and that, and that here are some long-term solutions uh, for these problems. Uh, that's, you know, and, you know, Paul Ryan, his plan, like the plan, hate it. It was a plan that acknowledged that there was a problem, and he offered some possible solutions. I think too often, uh, I think particularly among Democrats, they're not really talking that these are problems that need solutions. Um, in fact, Democrats have been talking about expanding Social Security, not necessarily reforming it. They've talked about, you know, new entitlements such as universal pre-K. Some on the left are even talking about, you know, a brand new mega entitlement, creating a universal basic income uh, for all Americans uh, because of automa automation, globalization, and wages don't keep up. So, in fact, on the left, there's a lot of talk about brand new uh, spending programs without, I think, a whole lot of thought uh, to... Uh, how to, how to finance uh, and reform uh, our existing ones beyond uh, sharply raising uh, taxes. So I think to the extent that I think this book is a valuable contribution in, in presenting why people from all parties should think about hard about the debt situation entitlements, uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic uh, addition. Um, that being said, uh, on, on, I, on like odd days, I feel exactly like Mike. Uh, about uh, uh, the debt. Uh, but today's an even day, so I'm going to sort of give sort of the other part uh, of my personality. Uh, and it seems to be interesting that, that since, uh, that over, let's say over the past 10 years now, really, uh, that the debt has gotten in many ways a lot worse, but people, I'm not sure, seem a whole lot uh, more worried about it. Back in 2006, we were almost, I, we may have actually been running or very close to running a primary surplus. For all talk about the Bush spending and the deficits, we were, very, we were running a primary surplus, which means uh, other, if you just take away interest, uh, we're at, we're at, we were actually in the black. And before the Great Recession, debt as a share of GDP, I think was about 37%-ish. So in that time, uh, the, de the debt has gone up dramatically. Debt as a share of GDP uh, has doubled. Uh, but people don't seem that much more concerned about it. And... And, wh and, wh and why is that? Is it just because Democrats don't seem concerned about it because they're focusing on new spending priorities, so they're not talking about it, so that means there's not, as mu there's not that part of uh, their, their voice isn't part of that debate. Uh, but I think about people who do worry a lot about the debt deserve some blame uh, for this not being a huge issue. Uh, I mean, certainly during, 
the story I like to tell is that in 2010, when I was still working with Reuters, uh, I was going to a small uh, dinner with a prominent U.S. politician who, is, who speaks a lot about the debt, and he said, look, I talk to the president frequently, and every time I talk to him, I say, look, we have to do something about this debt, that maybe we have another year, maybe two, and this whole thing is coming down like a house of cards. There's no way we can run, run these sorts of deficits. And that was in 2010. And the, uh, the deficits finally uh, come back down. The debt, obviously, has continued to increase. And yet, um, the dollar is strong, so strong. We're worried that's too, the dollar is too strong. The dollar hasn't collapsed. Interest rates remain extraordinarily low. Inflation, uh, low, maybe even lower than what the official statistics say. So there was a tremendous amount of alarmism about the debt that, that turned out not to pan out. Maybe you could say not yet. But here we are, uh, you know, heading into 2016, and we don't have a financial crisis. And if the same people who were talking about that we were going to have a debt-driven financial crisis now are saying, well, you know, that we're still going to have one. People, I think, are not going to uh, be as quick to listen to them. So I think that has really hurt the credibility of people who are very concerned about uh, debt and deficit and title reform is that some of their worst predictions uh, have, yet, uh, have yet to come true. I also worry that it also created a bit of a sort of debt obsession uh, on the right where you had people saying, listen, not only is debt good, uh, reducing debt good for sort of a long-term growth strategy, if we have, we have, uh, we have less debt, that means, you know, any... We won't have to have huge tax increases down the road. Government won't be taking as much uh, of the private sector. Fantastic for growth. Uh, but, at the, but, at the, but, at the, but at the same time, they created the theory that, well, you know what? This is actually a pro-growth policy right now. We can actually, if we just dramatically cut spending and dramatically cut the deficit, that is, that is, that's a growth policy, cut to grow. Uh, I think there's not a lot of evidence that that also uh, works. Well, I think also hurts the credibility of people who are very concerned uh, about the debt. Uh, and then I think the, the thing I would maybe like to talk most about, and I think uh, Maya was getting toward it, uh, at the end about sort of what we do, uh, piece, and I'm not going to try to do a dramatic reading uh, of Mike's book, uh, but there's one part which really uh, um, uh, stuck with me. He goes, um, federal, federal government spending is on track to reach more than 30%, 36% of GDP by mid-century, uh, with total federal and state government spending exceeding half of GDP. Clearly, we are on a course that that cannot continue. The question isn't will it stop, but how? Will we find our way to a soft landing that minimizes disruption, allows for renewed economic growth, and protects those Americans who are most vulnerable? Uh, that, I mean, I suppose that's maybe what I'd like to talk about in, in, in sort of our, our, our debate here, uh, is what does that soft landing look like? And I think, I think to a lot of people uh, on the right, and I'm not sure Mike really specifically laid out what that scenario looks like, is what is what is the soft is the soft landing mean uh, that we're that we are so successful reforming these programs that not only are they not going to bankrupt us, but we can actually spend less on government in the future than we can today, despite uh, a much older population in need of, in need of health care and health care being a huge driver, also getting social security, and I think a lot of folks are right say yes, if we can do this reform right, we can actually spend a lot less on government, and therefore. Uh, we can actually spend. We can actually have a uh, you know spend taking a lot less revenue. We can have some. We can have big tax cuts, at the, and I think that belief, particularly on the right, uh, is making it very hard to get uh, any kind of entitlement reform agreement. I think I I agree with Maya that listen, uh, taxes are going to have to be part uh, of the solution here. 
Uh, there's no, uh, Democrats are not never going to go for entitlement reform that is going to so dramatically cut projected future spending that you are going to be able uh, to do this without tax increases. Uh, I don't think it's I'm, I don't think it's really possible, anyways. But as long as you have a, people believing that reform can be so successful that we can actually have a much smaller government, despite all these demographic forces really pushing us toward more government spending, it's going to be absolutely impossible uh, to get an agreement. So I guess one thing I'd like to talk about is sort of what 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 does what is sort of the ideal scenario? What is what what is it real? What is a realistic projection for how much we can spend uh, on, on 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 government and on entitlements over the next generation uh, or two? Uh, does that include tax increases? How can we have tax increases that will do as little damage uh, to the economy as possible? Because I think without that debate. Um, then I don't think we're going to move very for forward. And in a few years, you know, we'll have to write another book with even scarier charts. Thank you. Um, so now we've entered our question and answer portion of the um, forum. Uh, a few housekeeping things. Uh, please, when you raise your hand, please wait for the microphone to arrive and for me to acknowledge you so that everyone in the room and everyone online can hear your question. And also, please state your name and affiliation. Uh, but I'm going to take the moderator's discretion and ask the first question. Um, here at Cato, we don't like to talk about centralized power. We don't like to put all of our eggs in one basket. Um, but if, let's say, we, you had this authority, you were the financial uh, wizard for the US government, and you had the ability to enact two changes to the federal budget, what would they be? Well, I guess I'll start since it's mine. My, my, I think uh, I actually would love to see uh, a properly uh, a drafted, which I have not yet seen one uh, yet, that's a spending limitation to, uh, balanced budget amendment. Not one or the other. I think they, they have to be combined. Something, some sort of uh, debt break like in like in Switzerland, that's combined with some sort of overall spending limitation. If you just have a balanced budget amendment, it's just sort of an invitation to spend as much as you want as long as you raise taxes for it. And one of the things that I think is a mistake is, is necessarily being, I guess, for, much of, for someone who just wrote a book on the terrors of the debt, I'm not debt obsessed in the sense that I would rather have a $1 trillion budget that was unbalanced than a $5 trillion federal budget that was in balance. Uh, they just had the taxes for that. I mean, I think the size of government does matter. As Milton Friedman used to say, the real cost of government is government spending, not whether or not you raise taxes or raise debt in order to pay for it. And, and, and Maya was right. The, the, the pledge should be, I'm not going to spend anymore, not necessarily how, you know, worried about how I'm going to pay for it. Whether that's fine if I run debt to pay for it, but not if I raise taxes. I think that that's, that's a mistake. Uh, so I, th I think that that's number one. Number two, I think would be Social Security reform. I think the, the idea of combining uh, some sort of restraint in the growth of Social Security benefits, I personally, to get really wonky, prefer changing the wage price indexing formula, which I don't blame if you don't want to get into that, but, uh, but that's the, the method that I would use in terms of restraining the growth of, of Social Security spending, combined with some form of personal accounts for young workers to enable them to sort of get some ice cream in exchange for eating the spinach of lower Social Security benefits in the future. And I, and I picked that because I think that's much easier to do than Medicare reform, uh, which I think is much more difficult uh, actually both politically and, uh, and economically to do uh, because it has to deal a lot with the future rise in cost of health care and how do you manage that. And that's, I think, going to be very difficult to do. Um, I love the question. I love it when we sort of 
go into specifically how would you fix it, and I hope that every debate in this country has that question, and that nobody allows, like, I'm going to get rid of corporate jet taxes and the little puny ones. Like, what would you do that would actually save real money? So my two would be means testing, uh, means testing for entitlement benefits. It's very important how you structure it because it can create bad incentives. Um, so there are a lot of different ways to to build means tests that make sense. But I believe that we can. I mean, I believe that we should have programs that create insurance for people who need it. You don't, to use, a, to use an overused example of it, but you don't insure your house for getting your gutters cleaned. You insure it for it not burning down, right? So we all hope that we're going to retire. I don't think that we should be having everybody who doesn't need need Social Security or Medicare collect big benefits, basically for the reason that a lot of people believe if you don't have universal programs, there won't be support for it. Um, and I don't actually believe that that's borne out. If you looked at the fastest-growing programs in the country recently, well, the first fastest-growing thing in the budget is interest on the federal debt. That should be a problem in everybody's eyes. But some of the fastest-growing programs are EITC and Medicaid, programs that are targeted. So I don't think that the concern that a program needs to be universal to have support is borne out. So I believe a well-crafted means test. And my second one would be tax reform. I think we have a highly, highly non-competitive tax code in this country. Um, there's so I don't have to explain. There's so many reasons we need to reform the tax code. But you can broaden the base, you can bring rates down, and you can raise revenues. And I think both of those um, would be critically important. There's one other that I would add that's not about the federal budget directly. And really, you probably aren't allowed to say in Cato because it has the word mandate. So I apologize for this. But um, I'd have mandated savings. I think a huge part of the problem in this country is that nobody saves. And part of the reason we don't save is now we believe there'll be so many programs for us down the road that we don't really need to be saving. And I just think, I mean, we could do a lot of defaults and nudges and try to get people to save, and I'm, I'm all for that as well. But I just think if you're part of this overall system where we're all kind of in it together and there's a social safety net, everybody should be saving because we know that retirement is, is supposed to happen in a lot of these things. So... Um, again, I apologize for saying that in Cato, but uh, that's one I would add, too. And I think that that would free up a lot of space for entitlement reform if people were saving on their own. Uh, Maya, Mike is already preparing a lawsuit. Yeah, I do. Strike down your, your, I your, your big government mandated savings plan. <laughs> so, uh, going to be in the wall. Like, prepare, prepare to no be giving mandates. testimony on, on that. Listen, um, you know, those, those, those are all good ideas. I'm not sure I have any better ideas than that. I think, uh, I think, I think doing Social Security reform certainly thinks benefits are more targeted toward people uh, who need them. Uh, I think Medicare reform, uh, you know, some sort of premium support system, fantastic. Uh, these tax expenditures, especially um, with a, where a huge amount go to upper middle class uh, wealthy Americans, uh, I think. I think those, 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 as uh, Mike might say, are ripe for reform. Those are ripe for reform. But let's, but sort of get, you know, get back to my uh, point. A few, a few, a few scholars of AI. I mean, we put together uh, them, not me, but they put together like a budget with sort, you know, sort of, you know, our a lot of our best ideas. There was like premium support plans, Social Security. I think uh, some expenditure stuff, all that. And what we were, and after running the numbers, what we were able to do was that over the next, I think it was 20 years, get the debt GDP ratio down from about 75% today to about 60%, all right, which is, so there was a huge improvement. Uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't eliminate, we didn't eliminate the debt. We didn't get it down to where it was, uh, you know, during the low point of, let's say, the, the Clinton years. So this is going to be awfully hard, and I think it's really about expectations. What can we expect? Uh, again, uh, 
you know, given given demographics, given the fact we've had a you know a welfare state from this in, in this country for a hundred years, what can we expect um, government the size of government to look like realistically uh, down the road, and how can we finance that? Can I make two quick points on James just in the the to create discussion. Um, but one, I really like this second point that we do have false expectations out there about what can be done. And that means when you start to realistically do this, this kind of exercise, which is a really good one, five think tanks put together plans to see how they would address the debt. When you get there and you can't meet the, you know, we'll never touch revenues, oh, I'll never touch entitlements, in fact, I'll expand them and I'll deal with this, then people are going to be so disappointed with all the false promises, we're not going to work on it. So I think that the reasonable expectations is critical. Um, I kind of disagree with your previous point about how, so I really get the point about there's been so much kind of crisis mongering. Oh my gosh, the US is gonna implode. There's gonna be a debt crisis. We have to fix things. But the one point that I would make is actually things have gotten a lot better since when people are saying that. In 2010, 2012, when people are saying we're headed for a crisis, nobody knows what the tipping point is. Nobody knows what would happen. We are the best looking horse in the glue factory. That, fact is that money still comes here during a crisis, even when we create the crisis for now. But the point is, the deficit has come down dramatically from when people were so concerned about what would happen if we Inconveniently, for our case. Inconvenient. Well, it might know. be I mean, better if it was not coming down. But I, yeah, I wouldn't us. even say for the case. I would say it came down in a really stupid way. It came down by raising tax rates and cutting discretionary spending, which is the opposite of what you want to do. You want to do entitlement reform and tax reform. So I think we put in place stupid policies that actually harm the economy but mask the size of the fiscal problem. So now nobody wants to do anything. And yes, there hasn't been a crisis because markets are very short-term oriented. But I think if you stay on the path that we were on then, and certainly, and also the path that we're on now, we know it's unsustainable, and at some point it will be a problem. But I just think that we did, we have to acknowledge the situation on the surface got better, but it did get better for stupid policies. Right. I mean, just, just fast about the tax, about, but what I was talking about what we, some, some folks at AEI did, that, that that plan also assumed more revenues. Uh, I think we took it from, you know, I think that historically it's been between 17 and 18, maybe I think it was like 17.4. I mean, we took revenues, I think, up to maybe, maybe 21 or 22 Whoa. percent. And we're still only able to get the down, get the debt down, uh, you know, to levelize that. Well, let, let me throw in on the, the revenue thing, question, the taxes thing, then, as long as we have some discussion. Uh, I have, I generally have a couple of problems with it. I mean, first, first, actually, I'm not one who believes that every existing tax break is sacrosanct. I mean, I, I mean, I certainly, I actually, I would like to see most of them go and, and then much, much lower rates, uh, because I think a lot of them are distorting of the, of the economy, and 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 I, and I think it's. You know, to some degree, kind of silly when Grover Norquist scores as a breaking the pledge, eliminating the ethanol tax break. I mean, I, mean, I think that something like that uh, can go just fine. My, my problem tends to be that it's, I mean, first of all, most of these plans are tax raises today in exchange for some theoretical savings in the future. So it says, mm -hmm. okay, if you raise the payroll tax by two percentage points today, 20 years from now, we'll begin to raise the retirement age for Social Security. And, you know, so, I mean, and we know that's never going to occur. So what you just get is the tax increase and you never get the spending cuts. I think it sort of takes the pressure off, off of anybody. When you start saying, okay, we can do revenues, I think that then the spending side, uh, side reduces it. And the second, I'd say it does go back to this, this question, I think the size of government ultimately matters. And I don't know what the optimal size of government is. But I'm pretty sure it's not the 50% we're headed towards. Uh, and, and I think that if we don't do something to reduce that, 
then I think then I think we're going to see this this slow economic growth in the future in the overhang, regardless of how we whether we finance that through debt or taxes. I just your, I think your first point is really excellent too. There really is an asymmetry of your ability to raise taxes quickly versus cutting spending quickly, and so so often it happens that we go ahead and we put the revenue increases in place and promise the spending cuts, and it doesn't happen. And you need if you ever have a deal like that, you really need to build in a ton of budget process that would try to lock that in. But it's a good point. Chuck Ludlam, formerly Lieberman's tax budget person, and I've been a happy civil service retiree for 11 years. Um, two questions. One, do, do any of you believe that we might have a problem at some point financing our debt in the bond market, where they might begin to ask for a slightly higher and then a slightly higher and then a slightly higher risk premium, so that there is potentially a, a trap for us, a downward spiral in terms of our financing? And second, it strikes me that the Republicans are in completely in the driver's seat at the moment. The squeeze put on discretionary, non-defense discretionary spending by the entitlements is the dream that they could, could want because it, it squeezes thousands and thousands and thousands of programs. The entire regulatory system all gets squeezed. And they, all they do is if, 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 the, demo, if, if the budget runs these as, as, uh, as uh, higher deficits, then it's interest rates that are squeezing. So they're in the driver's seat. And until Democrats decide that a non-means-tested program like Medicare needs to be reformed in order to save everything else that they love, the Republicans should just sit on their hands and let the squeeze continue. Yeah. Uh, in answer to the two, the two questions, for them, the first one, I, I do think longer term, I think we've got a while, but I think longer term interest rates are going to rise. I don't think they're going to stay at this level forever because I do think, you know, eventually people begin to, to worry about the, the sustainability uh, of the debt size that we have. And you're already seeing some worrisome changes in terms of, for example, the Chinese, as I understand it, have shifted more from some 30-year bonds to 10-year bonds and so on, which means they're looking to a shorter horizon. Uh, in, in terms of their investment strategy, which could potentially signal some, some concerns. Uh, in terms of the second point, I'm not sure the Republicans are in the driver's seat because the Republicans are so badly divided. Uh, in particular, you have the defense hawks, the John McCain and Lindsey Graham and so on, who desperately want to get rid of the sequester on defense spending and are willing, if stated in effect, that they're willing to accept higher domestic spending if they can get that, the caps off the de defense spending. And I think that would be a disaster. And you just saw, in fact, the play budget games with the, uh, with the latest budget where they've shifted a bunch of defense spending into uh, overseas contingency operations, which is now no longer sort of war fighting. It's now kind of becoming a giant slush fund for, for defense spending. And if that continues, I think uh, the Republicans are going to go right down the same route that uh, big spending that the Democrats were. So great questions, Chuck, not surprisingly. Um, I think one on interest rates, I have no idea at what point, again, you know, there's a lot of other places that people are more worried about, but certainly we're vulnerable. And the real, I guess the real power of it is rates go up, we pay a lot more in the already fastest growing part of the budget. So every one percentage increase in rates, and that's going to happen, will cost us $1.3 trillion over 10 years in higher interest payments. That's the amount the super committee was supposed to come up with, by the way, and they failed. They were unable to, and that's what brought us the sequester. That is a significant vulnerability. So it's the teaser rate, right? It's the college kid who gets the credit card with the teaser rate. Things have, or seem great. You open up the paper. There's op-ed saying, money is so cheap, we should borrow more. 
ignoring that structurally we are so dependent on it that if and when rates go up, and it seems likely that they will, certainly at some point, we're incredibly vulnerable to that. Um, the second point is a really interesting one, because I, I also don't know who's in the driver's seat, because back to Mike's point, point before, I think that Democrats may well say the longer we wait, to make these changes, the more likely it is that it becomes a revenue increase fix. Because if you need money immediately, it will be revenues. Just think about Social Security. You're not going to raise the retirement age and get a ton of money next year. But you could lift the payroll tax cap, and you're going to get a ton of money next year. So I think Democrats may think, oh, if you wait it out, this will be more tax-heavy a deal. But I think the irony, or, or I mean, just the sad situation of that is the squeeze that is going on now is terrible. I mean, from what, where I sit, the sequester is very damaging. It's squeezing out the public investments that are actually a big part of what government should be doing. And the vulnerable people, the people who are vulnerable and depending on entitlement programs are the ones who stand to lose if these programs aren't strengthened in a smart way in advance. So I feel like the trade, if you're on the left saying, oh, well, I'll get more revenues over time, but ignoring the huge sacrifices you're taking in the interim, and we already have in our budget in terms of being short-sighted, isn't worth it, but I think that calculation is being made as well. Yeah. Uh, real, real fast, I mean, I, I sense there's at least two things that have happened sort of in sort of general consensus Democratic thinking that make it getting any kind of deal a lot harder. Uh, I remember going to a, a Center for American Progress thing like in 2009, like a little uh, event, you know, a lot, lot like this. And people were at that point, there was a lot of concern. These are sort of classic, a lot of, you know, ex-Clinton people. They were very concerned about uh, the debt. There's a lot of talk of a value-added tax. I believe uh, Robert Altman got up there and said, we need, we need to get a value-added tax now, $500 billion a year. So that, that they're extremely concerned. I sense, and may I sort of alluded to it earlier, a lot less concern. I think there's a lot less worry about raising top tax rates and how uh, that would hurt economic growth, which makes getting a deal with Republicans harder. I also don't think they're worried about the interest rate squeeze. There are a lot of Democratic economists who, don't, who think, listen, we can run up a lot more debt and, there, and is, interest rates are not going to go up. People are going to continue to give us their money because they view us as sort of a safe haven, like the Medici Bank of old. They're not expecting a return. They just want a safe place where there's going to be low inflation. They see continued low interest rates. So I don't think that concern about an interest rate squeeze is, is there the way it used to be, which I think, again, makes it a lot harder to get an agreement. Yes, right here. Wait for the microphone. My name is Stephen Shore. Any speculation as to how the overturning of Citizens United would affect uh, the deficit and debt? I have none. I don't know if anyone has any. Hmm. No, I, I actually, I, I don't think it would have much impact at all, to, to, to be honest. I, I think people largely misunderstand Citizens United. Uh, they, they blame it for super PACs and so on. It actually had nothing to do with super PACs. It was about corporate and labor union contributions. Money would just shift elsewhere in politics. Mo money in politics is entirely fungible. It just moves from one location to another. Citizens United's impact, it, it's great political rhetoric, but it has very little real impact, I think, on, on spending. Uh, we'll go over here, and then we'll move to the side of the room. Thanks. My name is Chris Kloshot. I'm a graduate student at George Washington University. Um, so I think it's easy to see that an increase in the number of people benefiting from Medicare and Medicaid would increase health care costs. Um, but my, my question is two-part. First of all, to what degree do you think that, that over-regulation of the practice of medicine 
um, and the medical device industry contributes to that increase in healthcare costs. Um, and would deregulation of these areas um, in any way contribute to, I guess, potentially decreasing the cost and, in effect, decreasing parts of the deficit? I, I think it would have an impact. I think deregulating the healthcare industry would help lower costs, but I don't think it's the primary driver. Uh, of costs. I think primary driver is partly that we have an aging population and the older you are, the more likely you are to seek health care. And the fact that we insulate people largely from health care decisions, so there's an overconsumption problem with health care. And, and it's interesting, actually, one of the, the kind of shows the, both the agreement and the disagreement in Washington is that both President Obama and, say, Paul Ryan have the same target growth rates for Medicare. Uh, but they'd get to it very radically different ways. The president essentially wants to squeeze from the top down, essentially cutting reimbursements to providers, and then that would encourage them to withhold treatment in, in effect uh, and to impose the sort of rationing from the top. Paul Ryan essentially wants to make healthcare purchasing cost more with a premium support model so that if you want more additional services, you have to pay for it out of your pocket, which increases the cost to you, which would encourage individuals to sort of self-ration in the sense that they would, they would choose less. They both kind of want to get to the same place, but it's a very different top-down versus bottom-up model. And I think that deciding on that is ultimately going to be the important uh, break on health care costs. I think, I mean, two, two of the biggest things in the contributing to healthcare cost growth, um, one is good, it's innovation. We are highly, we have tons of important innovations and people want them, there's a demand for them, and so we have new healthcare options coming along all the time. The second one is what Mike said, uh, consumers don't have skin in the game, that's a tremendous problem. So the area where I would most work is both a combination of the delivery system and the payment system so that the incentives are better aligned for people to produce good health instead of lots of health care, and for consumers to um, understand what they're purchasing, what they're paying for. All right, we'll go here in the middle. Uh, Robert Perry, recently retired federal employee. Thank you for your tax dollars. Uh, I, many years ago, 32 years ago, as a matter of fact, before I joined the federal government, I wrote a book about Social Security. And I want to give you a little historical perspective. In 1983, we it was predicted that as of today, we would have a $12 trillion surplus in the Social Security Fund. A $12 trillion surplus. And you just said that last year there was a $60 deficit. So therefore, we're 32 years uh, ahead of schedule on going bankrupt in Social Security. And uh, so, that should, so that gives you a little historical perspective right there because of economic, because of, frankly they just kept adding more ornaments to the Social Security Christmas tree and they just, and you know we've had the, we had these same arguments 32 years ago when they made the changes, that, you know some of us who are still alive were making the same arguments, it's the same solutions and the same arguments, it's just like deja vu all over again, it felt like Logie Berra <laughs> and the solutions are all the same. And it's just, but if we don't do something, 32 years from now, it's, you know, we, we'll finally collapse. And I frankly feel sorry for the next president. So just a little bit of historical perspective for you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we'll go down here in the, in the front.
Yeah, my name is Matt Tuning, and I'm with Run for America U. Uh, my question is kind of, earlier we talked about some of the most effective ways that we could uh, tackle this debt and deficit problem, uh, but what do you think are some of those politically feasible? Like, what are some things we could do right now that would put some grease on the wheels uh, to this kind of process of moving forward that, uh, like in this political climate, would be reasonable for us to, to expect? Hmm. Hmm. Um, wow. It, yeah, I mean, this political climate, I think what's reasonable to expect is gridlock. Um, but I think if the president put a budget out that was meant to be taken holistically, and he said that a couple times when he put it out, there's a lot of, there are entitlement reforms in here, there are revenue increases, you can't have one without the other. Um, I don't think we're going to have revenue increases in the next year. I just don't think that's going to happen with the new Republican Congress. Um, I do think there are some moderate entitlement reforms, mainly in Medicare, in the president's budget that I would look at. And they're kind of technical things, but they're part of how you, how you reimburse for what you reimburse. There's enough savings there that you could have a small package of health care items. I guess what I, here's what I would do. Okay, I've sort of filibustered long enough, I have an answer. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of things that I think about as fiscal speed bumps that we just have gone through and we're coming up and which are small moments in the budget each year. The highway trust fund we're about to come up to, the doc fix we just passed and we blew through it and we borrowed. Like I said, we paid for one third of it and we borrowed the rest. But the highway trust fund, the tax extenders that we have to deal with at the end of the year, the replacement for part of the sequester if we do that, the debt ceiling, if you want to count that. And importantly, next year, disability. The disability portion of Social Security trust funds will be running dry. Those are small moments. If we made a commitment not to borrow, not to just throw them on the credit card, but to offset the costs of fixing each one of those, that would be practice. That would be like trying to learn what it is to actually pay for something and pay for you can cut spending or raise taxes or do both. But um, I think... Try making a commitment to pay for those quote-unquote fiscal speed bumps for the next year and the president's budget, finding the overlap where the president's budget, what Paul Ryan has done, what the House and Senate budget committees have in them to the extent that they have details will be the place where you'd look for the pay-fors that are involved there. Yeah, I think the disability uh, insurance trust fund issue really is coming up one. really important. And the Republicans uh, slipped into the rules, actually, uh, the congressional rules, a, a rule that says that you can't borrow money from the old age trust fund to support the disability trust fund. So they basically prohibited them from kicking it down the road. Unless you make and some small changes. That's right. Then, then but you they have to do something. Yeah, that's they right. Do something. They, they can't just, what, what they traditionally would have done is just said, oh, well, we'll just sort of combine the two trust funds and we'll move money around and that'll give us another four or five years. The fact that the disability trust fund is going to go broke in a year and they're going to have to open it up at least to, to talk about doing something with it, uh, I think is, is real progress. Now, on the other side of that, there was immediately fundraising letters that went out talking about how the Republicans, you know, this is a secret plot to destroy the Social Security system because of this rule and, and stuff. So you're already seeing Democrats, including Hillary, just in her speech Sunday, uh, indicating that there's absolutely no changes to Social Security except for expanding it. Uh, so, you know, we have $22 trillion in debt, so why not make the program bigger. So I actually have another question. <clears throat> so we've, ta we've talked about it a little bit, but in 2011, President Obama, Speaker Boehner came together and actually negotiated a spending cut deal in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. They created the super committee. If the super committee failed, the sequester went into effect. Um, they've already changed this deal once, and they likely will change this deal again later this year. 
Um, so my question is, let's say we do get a deal in which we reform spending. How do we actually ensure that it goes into effect? Well, that, that was my issue earlier with the taxes versus spending. I think, and, and I think my allusion, there's got to be some sort of process in place that makes it very, very difficult, supermajority, something in, in the rules that makes it almost impossible to get out from under it. Because I think otherwise, the, these things do have a tendency to slip. As soon as, some, as soon as the pain bites somebody, they begin to back up on it. So the doc fix is another example. The doc fix was you know, sort of a nuclear weapon that was going to go out there, and everyone knew it was never going to actually be implemented. But it always forced right. some action. People say, well, they never actually made the cuts on the doc fix. They didn't. But, but whenever it came up, they ended up with these little trade-offs, these little tiny reforms that actually did some good. And now by getting rid of the doc fix issue, in fact, doing it on borrowing, they've, they've removed that th warning bell, that canary in the mine shaft, so to speak, that they would have had to deal with. And I think that that's the sort of thing we've got to watch out for. So I, I agree with that completely, which is um, let's just start with the understanding that the way we budget in this country is just really stupid, <laughs> right? We regularly don't have a budget. And the way that we actually get things done right now is we put in place a really stupid policy and then we hope that when they get rid of it, they'll replace it with something a little bit smarter. Um, and so far, with SGR until last time, but in the past with SGR, they did. They replaced a really stupid cut that wasn't going to work to doctors with some very small but reasonable health care reforms that, that were a big improvement. And same with sequester. Last time there were some gimmicks in it, but they replaced the sequester with smarter policies, um, looking at the mandatory entitlements. So the question will be, on the sequester, if they do do something right now, if they replace it with other cuts, I'll feel great. That will mean that they actually are willing to say, okay, we're not just going to give up on the whole thing. If they say, forget it, let's just, I'll trade you, Republicans say, I'll trade you more spending in defense for Democrats more spending in discretionary, we're not going to pay for any of it, then that's what you're worried about, which is none of this sticks anyhow. But I have seen a tiny willingness to stick to some of these bad policies and use them as action-forcing moments. Basically, there are a lot of members of Congress who know we need to do this, but they, they say, like, you kind of have to force me to do it. I can't, I'm not going to take the initiative and do it on my own. That's a terrible, that's not really a definition of leadership, but um, it's what we have. Yeah. I think the biggest action-forcing moment is going to be when it's clear that the days of the falling deficits and the low deficits are behind us and there's going to be nothing but a, an ascending line on all those charts in front of us. That's a, that might be an action-forcing moment. Okay, so this will be our last question. Let's take the gentleman in the yellow shirt. Uh, all of you oh, hold on, wait for the microphone, please. Thank you. Tom Donlan with uh, Barron's Magazine. Uh, all three of you have at least um, acknowledged the possibility that nothing really meaningful will get done, and eventually there really will be a crisis in which disaster of some financial kind, whether monetary or fiscal or both, actually strikes. What parts of the U.S. government, uh, as you see it, that is not doing anything to deal with this problem in advance, do you think will be called upon to deal with the actual crisis when and if it comes? Uh, for, for example, the Fed was led the way in dealing with the crisis of 2009, 2008, 2009, uh, and Treasury was uh, was somewhat uh, somewhat helpful or not? Congress was completely useless, and the executive was uh, was was uh, was was not much. You can't say much about that either. Uh, do you think that we are, that we have the, um, the the governmental structures in place that were and the and that the 
political system can actually fix a, a crisis, or will it look more like um, 1932 or uh, Germany in 1921? Uh, how how will we go from from here to there? From there from there to some uh, to some uh, new stability. Well, I think the problem is that once you're actually in a fiscal crisis, there is no easy way to fix it. Because um, austerity, and let me take a minute to just say the difference between austerity and fiscal responsibility, because I think that there are journalists out there who have regular columns in the New York Times who have conflated this on purpose. But austerity is when all of a sudden you cut taxes and you raise spending, and that can, at the time when the economy's not doing well, have very damaging effects on the economy. Fiscal responsibility, I'd point to the Simpson-Bowles model, is putting in place a 10-year plan that phases in very gradually only once the economy is strong enough to start uh, handling those changes, but put, lets those changes be known ahead of time so you already know that they'll be there. So fiscal responsibility um, also means getting out ahead of the crisis so that you've made the changes. You see entitlements are on an unsustainable path. You make those changes now. You've made promises that lead to you know, a gazillion trillion dollars in unfunded promises. You don't keep that on the budget. Once you're in the middle of the problem, it's very difficult because anything that you do that helps get the budget under control will harm the economy further. So you're in a terrible downward cycle. I think there's no question but that the Fed would be called on, but we are in uncharted territory with the Fed already in terms of, of what we're about to exit from and where, where one would use those tools. I've always felt that like, when you meet a monetary policymaker, you kind of have to apologize as a fiscal person because we have fallen down on the job, and their job has been all that much harder, and now they've used many of their tools up as well. So I'm sure pressure would be on the Fed. I'm not sure what the Fed would be able to do in response, given where they are now and, and what we've already accumulated. Yeah, I think, I think you can look to the sort of fiscal crisis as you've seen in, in other countries to kind of get an image of what might occur. You can look to, like, Greece, where, you know, the problem is essentially you have to make cuts immediately. How do you make them, you know, you, you cut pensions on people who are living on their pension and, you know, how do you, can you do that politically? And if you can't, what do you do? If credit begins to dry up, the whole economy begins to slow. And, you know, there's one way of looking at it. You sort of try and eke it out, in which case you get this long, tail-ending, kind of never-ending recession, which is kind of what Greeks are, are into. You can do it in a big V, the way the Balkan countries did it, where they, they, they did do austerity. They managed to cut back uh, substantially, people really suffered for three or four years. Now they're beginning to bounce back up. But, you know, you had to absorb an enormous amount of economic pain at the time. So, you know, I'm not sure which way we would, we would ultimately go. Uh, you know, I, I think I'd much prefer the, the, the Baltic model but uh, over the Greek model because it ends, the pain ends. But uh, it, it's painful either way you look at it. Yeah, I think, listen, if, if something happens, the uh, U.S. will be the last economy to suffer some sort of financial shock uh, from high debt levels. So we'll have, pl we, so we'll have plenty of other uh, examples to follow for a model. Great. Well, thank every, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. If you would like to join us upstairs on the second floor in our conference center, there will be a luncheon, and there will be copies of Michael's book to purchase. Uh, you will also find the restrooms upstairs on the second floor on your way to lunch. Thank you. Thank you.